This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is psychic and author Jack Rourke. Jack is a skilled and compassionate professional, offering his abilities as a psychic to individuals, businesses, and law enforcement. He specializes in the use of clairvoyance and has the ability to feel and hear extrasensory information. He is a gifted seer with an understanding of the human condition who possesses a genuine desire to serve. With Sounds True, Jack has written a new book called The Rational Psychic, a skeptic's guide to extraordinary perception, where he presents a detailed, thoughtful, and often surprising examination of seemingly supernatural and psychic events, relying on decades of firsthand experiences and scholarly investigation. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Jack and I spoke about how science can better verify psychic abilities. We talked about how a rational psychic views something like spirit guides. And finally, we talked about what a heart-based motivation might be for cultivating psychic abilities. Here's my conversation with Jack Rourke. Jack, in your work, you make a distinction between what you call paranormal experiences and psychic phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I think usually people group this whole thing into one big soup of all that Mm woo-woo. But you're actually, as the rational psychic, helping us separate Mm -hmm. and really look at things using a rational lens. So let's begin by looking at these two categories and why you've chosen to categorize unusual experiences in this way, two different categories. There's a couple of reasons I, I chose to to break the perception up into two categories. Um, the first reason is principally because psychic perception is the ability to perceive information else without using the five physical senses, information that is objectively verifiable. And so without an ability to objectively verify information, how do we know it's real? You know, it, it, it keeps us in check, keeps us honest. More importantly, um, it keeps us in touch with ourselves, you know, uh, because what we could be perceiving could be projections, could be our own judgments, our own evaluations, our own emotional foibles and, and mental pains or what have you that we're, we're perceiving as phenomena outside of us. Um, so that kind of has a two-pronged thing. One is it's helpful for us and enables us to know ourselves better. And two is it keeps us, keeps us stable. And three actually keeps us honest. Um, and then with paranormal perception, I coined that term because typically things like ghosts or energies, entities, any, any kind of anything that takes a belief system, you know, those things are normally conceptualizations of emotional experiences, um, the influence the environment has on our body. Uh, worst case scenario, they can be ways to manipulate others, manipulate situations and passively assert control over circumstances. Um, and so I felt like it was important for someone to come forward and communicate, um, more specifically exactly what these kinds of perceptions are. Okay. So I want to take this a little deeper, but basically what you're saying is psychic phenomena can be verified by a third party. It should be. In order for it to qualify for what you're saying Mm -hmm. is true psychic experience. Correct. And so 
Do you have examples in your own life of things that have been clearly verified and you say, here it is? I mean, it's fact. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a number of ways. One is that we've never met before. And if I was able to communicate something personal about your life, specific, that uh, perhaps I was sitting with a client once um, and she actually happened to be a psychic. I didn't know this, a practicing psychic. And, um, you know, I began to give her sort of a, some details about her life and some circumstances and thing like, things like that. And then I actually stopped and was communicating something to do with her lower back. And the way my, my mind was perceiving this was that I began to describe to her. I said, what if – I said, help me understand this. Let me just tell you what I'm getting because it, it doesn't make sense, but I'd have to spit it out as I'm getting it. I said, the way I'm seeing this is as if a cat would jump across your back and use it as a springboard. I know that doesn't make sense, but then it rakes your back. I said, I'm getting like – do you have a cat? I said, I'm getting these kind of cuts and scratches on your lower back. And I said, hold on a second. I took my pad and I kind of drew this pattern. And her face went white, and she lift, turned and lifted up her blouse, and she had had a, a series of surgeries on her lower back that left these random ha- patch mark of scars or hatch marks of scars. And so that's something I couldn't possibly know. You know, um, something more recent was um, at the end of the, or the end of the winter of 2011, I was filming a TV show in Harvestral, New York, and uh, I didn't know this at the time, but um, Havistral was was famous because it's where most of the bricks were made in in North America until you know shortly before the or right after the Second World, First World War. Um, and I I had been doing a meditation the morning before I went to the set, and I asked at the end of my meditation, I asked to to see any information that was relevant to that day's filming, and it was sort of a haunted house, you know, type TV show, and I was meant to go there and talk about whatever was going bump in the night there. And so I began to um, see these bodies piled up under the ground. And I thought, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. I mean, I can't go to a haunted house, you know, set and say, oh, you know, or a house that's supposed to be haunted and say on camera, there's bodies buried in the ground. Like, to me, that seemed like too hokey, too spooky, too... The TV producers would love it. Oh, sure. But I, I think this is not rational. This is ridiculous, you know. Uh, long story short, uh, as it turned out, when they did some research, I did talk about it on camera. When they did some research, they came back and had an old New York Times article in 1906. They're, the owner of that home was used to be the mayor of that town, and he was directly related or was doing a business with the, the owner of the brick manufacturer, and he was getting kickbacks, and he let the guy dig closer and closer and closer to the residences. And eventually, he caused a landslide, and a whole street collapsed and was consumed by the earth and um it was very cold there were fires because the gas lines broke and the the clay when it when it it kind of rolled over the earth and swallowed these houses it it turned to cement there was sand and water from the from the fire hoses and 19 people were never recovered so these bodies were buried in the ground and and i was able to perceive it and it was verified by a 1906 new york times article um, so these are the kinds of things, and sometimes they're not that dramatic. That's a one in a million type situation, but most times it's more subtle. Um, but uh, it, when we when we require information to be verified that way, I think that there's some aspect of our mind or some aspect that's greater than what we are works with us and conspires to communicate in a way that you know conceivably is is much more fantastic than just normal dialogue. Now I've talked to a lot of different people over the years who have had different psychic gifts. Mm -hmm. And many of them, I think, have had experiences similar to what you're describing Mm -hmm. in terms of working with a client or having a vision that was then verified Mm -hmm. by something in history. But they've also been wrong quite a lot. And many of their experiences haven't been verified Mm -hmm. by a third party of any kind, but yet they take them as true because they were right on so many different occasions. And everything, I think, is a, a factual psychic observation. So how do you sort all this out? Well, truth be told, you, you have to operate that way. You have to operate with a, with a level of trust because when you open your mind for, for such perception, you can't be a critic. You can't self-judge. You can't. You have to open and trust and just communicate the information. So I can be, I'm wrong all the time. You can be wrong. You know, some of the best people are, are wrong. Doesn't that make you lose your confidence? Um, you know what? There's. I sometimes say to people, you're only as good as your last reading. You know, so, you know, that keeps you on your toes. And it, it can erode your confidence to some degree. You're right. Um, but it also it keeps you honest because one of the things that I've noticed and other colleagues that might have noticed well with certain people who do this work is there's a sense of omnipotence that can that can develop. 
And at the end of the day, being psychic is not what's most important in life. It's not why we're here. It's not the greater purpose of mankind. And so, you know, by by remaining humble, by remaining, you know, sort of uh, grounded and accepting that, yeah, we can make mistakes, not, you know, that we we don't keep ourselves from spiritually evolving, you know. Um, so, but stepping backward just a second to kind of address your question more directly, there is a gray area, you know, with information. Sometimes there's a lapse of time before something can be, can be um, validated. Sometimes you won't get that validation because someone might not come back to you and take the time to communicate that to you. There's plenty of times where, you know, a client will sit and say, oh, he's crazy or something like that. And then, you know, I find out, meet them three years later and they say, oh, my God, you know, a year after the reading, remember you said this? And I'll say no. And they say, well, you told me this. And do you believe this and this and this came true? Why didn't you call me? You know, I would have been nice to know, but I don't. I don't actually. I really don't care. But it illustrates the point that we don't. We don't always know. But you have to. You have to operate under the assumption that it's that it's true. But you know, I think that most importantly, um, requiring a certain level of validation is just a way to keep yourself honest and to know that what you're doing is 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 legitimate. You know. Okay, but now you're the rational psychic, so I'm going to ask you kinds of questions that I might not just ask somebody who hasn't spent a couple decades, really, trying to understand psychic phenomenon. Most mm-hmm. of the people I talk to, they just say, you know, I see these things and I report on what I see and yeah. I don't really understand it, but it seems to help people. Yeah. But now you've gone on a quest to really understand what's going on mm-hmm. with these things that I mm-hmm. see. So just sticking for a moment with this question about what's happening when a psychic's wrong. Maybe a psychic has a 70% batting average and 90%. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have any idea of your own level of accuracy as a percentage? You know, I had someone, um, I'll avoid giving you a number because, you know, that, that'll be a statistic out there that, you know, I'll have to adhere to. But I had someone give me a very oppressive number once um, that in his opinion, um, it was unsolicited uh, and I was flattered by it. But then, you know, there's other people that there was, I've had another person say, you know, you're, you have this number and really the number really doesn't matter in my opinion. Um, really at the end of the day, it matters to me, I have to say is, you know, the person out here, it's one of the things I'm dying to find out is the gosh darn number. It's the quality of service is what's really important. Um, and, and so there's something, there's an important thing to understand is that when a psychic works, the... Every time a psychic goes into service, no matter who they are, I don't care if you're the most famous or the granny down the street who reads for her friends, it's an experiment. And there's a variety of conditions that that can influence that experiment. Some of them we know what they are. Some of them we don't. Some of the things we do know is the the emotional connection, the disposition, the compatibility between the two people who are are creating the experiment. So although, um, you know, I... You know, I am the seer. If there's something disagreeable between us, that can influence the reading. Uh, if, if you're reticent or fearful, not that you're interfering with my perception per se, but that reticence and that fear can pull me back into the here and now because of a concern for you or, you know, a concern about being wrong or a concern about taking care of you. These things all become distractions. There's also things... Um, that are called, uh, sometimes they're called detractors or attractors. And I'll give you an example. Psychic ability, uh, by and large, works primarily around something called need relevance. And that's just, do you need that information? Does it feel relevant so your mind's attracted to it? At the height of the Cold War, um, there was a spy pro- psychic spy program here in the United States, one in the Soviet Union, one in Great Britain, one in China. The Soviets understood that one of the ways you could keep psychic spies from eavesdropping or remotely viewing, you know, classified meetings was to put statues of, you know, erotic statues or pornography around the meeting area because most of the readers were men and their consciousness would be attracted to the nude figures. And so that that was one of the only things that they if were I'm ever going to have a secret meeting. It's going to be go. covered with and pornography. You know, yeah, okay. <laughs> 
But you know, because their 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 mind was attracted to these images, or, or, or emotionally there was a there was a compulsion to to see what this was, you know. Um, and so, because other than that, there's no real no real way to shield the activity of consciousness. There were there's stories about. I have a colleague who actually worked on one of these programs, and uh, the NSA spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in looking for a mole after a remote viewer had almost verbatim read a classified document in a sealed safe. So it, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. So when you're, as a, as, a, as, a, as a psychic, if you're working with a client, and let's say that you had, you know, a bad morning or a bad day, or there's something in, going on with you, that acts as an attractor, you know, and can actually pull your focus and keep your focus away from, you know, that reservoir of information that would normally be accessed in service of your client. Um, so you have your your emotional disposition, your mental clarity, any kind of environmental, um, you know, distractions. Um, there's just any number of things. And then there's how you interpret the information. Yeah. You know, your mind, few people understand because we use so many spiritual metaphors to explain psychic ability. But the reality is whether you want to spiritually conceptualize it or not, before we get to that spiritual source, we're, we're accessing accessing that through our own subconscious. And so once you enter in and you go into that, that depth of your own mind, anything in there that is your own unhealed issue or, or trauma or things that you're secretly attracted to or desire, all those things can come to bear. They also can be projected outward, which also can be confusing, but that's, that's kind of deals more with paranormal perception. Um, but once you kind of access the subconscious or arguably the, the super unconscious where everything exists and as, as, as information, there is some part of your mind that has to grab a hold or receive it and then process it and then communicate that to your conscious awareness so then you can speak it to your client. So some people might, or arguably, they might conceptualize this as a spirit guide. This is what communicates to me. This is what protects me. This is the gatekeeper that you know guards my personalized, my individual consciousness from from all that is, yeah? And so when that information enters, your mind then quickly evaluates it and says, is this relevant to me or is it not? Now, the interesting thing about psychics, I think one of the things that, that makes us, uh, predisposes us to be able to communicate information about other people is that, you know, there's there's either a conditioning or some deeply, deeply held concern or belief that what matters to you matters to me. And there's a whole conditioning process that goes into that. So that allows you to perceive information that's relevant to other people. However, because there's no context, that information will not make sense to me. And so my, my primary process won't always understand what that information is. And if it's too traumatic, based on what my history, my individuality, it could alter that information to make it more palatable. So when I either communicate that to you, it will come out as a symbol or something that's interpreted incorrectly, or it might not make it into my awareness at all because the mechanisms of my mind will hide it to protect me. Um, now, the interesting thing is, is when you're also maybe tapping in or telepathically connecting to information that is coming and going in your subconscious, conceivably, the same mechanism in me that distorts information to make it palatable or not to my mind is also operating in you. So sometimes, speculating, I could be creating a symbol from a symbol. Yeah. And the information could get lost, you know. But when there's a, when there's a clear channel and there's a, there's a, a harmonious, compatible, compatible, compatible relationship... Um, and all the stars are aligned, sometimes magical things can happen. Yeah, I mean, listening to you talk about the complexity of the way the human processing system works, it seems miraculous that any psychic could be as accurate as some seem to be. Well, you know, the process is far more complex, I think, um, than than people normally understand. And also, I think it's it's my way to perhaps maybe I'm making it more complex than it need be. But I've always been that person. You know, it didn't make sense to me when I was younger, when I was looking to to explain my experiences and what I was going through. Uh, when I looked for answers, I was I was I was hearing paranormal metaphors to to explain my paranormal questions, and 
uh, to me, that didn't make sense. You know, I wanted nuts and bolts. Yeah, which brings us really to the core, I think, of the conversation I want to have with you, which is how do you understand your psychic abilities? How do you understand what's going on rationally Mm -hmm. from a perspective of neuroscience, from the perspective of extreme human capacities that are maybe outside of what we normally understand humans are capable of? Mm -hmm. Well, the term rational is interesting because it lends itself to rationalizing or being, you know, logical and grounded. I meant the latter. No, no, yeah, (laughs) I I know. I know. But it's interesting um, when I think about it because the very, the, there's an aspect of rational that actually, that actually distorts what we do, you know, meaning sometimes as a psychic, I'm sitting with you and I'm picking up information that seems, um, strange to me. So I want to make, I I want to make it rational. I want to make it make sense. So I add information or twist it or turn it. So it fits what I think is rational, but it is only irrational because I don't have the context. The context, the appropriate context for that information is in your mind. So if I twist it and give it to you, then it becomes wrong. You know, a uh, quick example is uh, I was mentioning earlier how once I was doing a reading for someone and I and she was in her 50s and I was seeing her as a little girl and, and her brother and identifying his career and all these other things. I knew I was in the right place. And uh, I saw her running and laughing, like squealing like only little girls can, like they were having a ball. And I saw her brother chasing her with a plastic alligator and he's making it bite her hair. And when I communicated that to her, she started cackling. She was laughing so hard. She was crying. And she said, oh, but that's wrong. And I went, what? And she said, no, 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 it, it wasn't, it was a, it was a real alligator, you know? And so I went, so I said, oh, well, that's interesting. I was right, you know, but I was wrong at the same time. And then I realized in when I'm under stress, whether it's financial or emotional or what have you, I often dream of alligators and they'll eat me or swimming in waters where there's dangerous alligators. And so my mind perceived the alligator and turns it into something that would be threatening to me. So I know I didn't answer your question, but it kind of backhandedly answers your other question too. But ra- how, how we make things rational. Well, how you understand at this point in your mm-hmm. life, your psychic abilities. Yeah. I understand it as something... I make, I make a point in The Rational Psychic to say that all human beings are extrasensory, but not all human beings are psychic. And I make, a, I make the distinction. Draw, the, oftentimes those terms are used interchangeably, and arguably they can be. But just to kind of, kind of you know, differentiate, the way I understand a psychic ability in a rational way is to say that, that all of us have an aspect of our brain that scans the environment outside the bounds of linear time, and that's our amygdala. The amygdala, how it, it defines emotions, our emotional experiences emotionally, helps catalog our memory according to emotion. This is a small part of the yeah, brain. in someplace. the midbrain. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and what it also does is it, you know, when we were less primitive beings, it helped with our fight or flight response. You know, it helped us sense and move. You know, ever try to grab a snake and it seems to turn and look at us before we can have a chance? Some aspect of it arguably knows there's a threat looming before it's even conscious, so it moves. We have that capability. Have you ever, like, turned your head or blinked because something was about to hit your eye, even before you were conscious of something hitting your eye? That's an aspect of, of, our, of our, our lizard self, as it were. Or, you know. And so what I look at is that potentially as, as the human brain matured and we became thinking creatures rather than feeling and reacting creatures... We began to deny that feeling aspect of ourselves and rely on decision-making. But all the while, the perceptive capability of the less evolved mind, the brain, is still functioning. And what I suggest is that is that psychic ability is an adaptation of the fight-or-flight response, meaning we have this part of our brain that is always scanning for pain and pleasure outside the, the illusion of reality that is created by our brain. The brain orients our awareness in, in time and space, but yet this more primitive aspect of our brain is it can step outside of that. And for a person who's maybe been conditioned to a certain way, they can perceive information that way um, and also um, interpret it in a meaningful way. 
So I look at, I see that as a very rational kind of explanation for how it is we can possibly do what we do. Another thing I, I looked at is I talked about somatic responses in, in therapy, you know, and I forget who maybe the originator of this idea was, but Freud became well known for you know introducing this idea that he noticed, you know, in therapeutic setting that he would begin to feel in his own body the anxieties or the tensions or the wounds that his client was holding, and he would use these as tools to then address it in his client. You know, and I think a proper psychic relationship with a client isn't isn't dissimilar to a to a therapeutic relationship. There's an assumed level of expertise and a responsibility on behalf behalf of the seer, and there's an emotional emotional vulnerability and all these things. And so, in that same situation, I thought, have I ever noticed, you know? A somatic response in myself? And the argument is yes, you know, yes, I have. The difference is, I think, between someone like myself and maybe a trained clinician is that, you know, they're using that right away as, as a way of tuning into someone else to adjust their focus from a dialogue about some fight or conflict to, oh, I feel this tension, tell me about that. You know, and in that, there could have been, it's a stored memory, a visceral memory in the body, or it's just a clue there's anxiety or something. With a psychic, we can, these somatic experiences actually can be interpreted um, literally, meaning not long ago I had a client on the East Coast of the United States and she's working with me under a pseudonym, I didn't know her name, and um, you know she was kind of headstrong, she had some bad experiences in the past with psychics, and she just wanted to know what was up, what was up with me, like I had to prove myself before she was going to open up and ask me what her real questions were. So I scanned her and I started feeling, you know, some, some pain in my lower back. And I was, then that translated visually, I'm seeing that her blood was black and kind of cloudy. And I, obviously she doesn't have black blood, but I said, you know, let me, let me say this. And I described what I was seeing. I said, this tells me you're having issues with your kidneys. And she began to cry and she said, yes, I had my kidney removed, had it replaced and it's failing. Am I going to live? You know, that was her question. You know, and so these kinds of profound life or death questions come up. But more to your point is that, you know, how we can rationally explain some of these experiences, perhaps, is that we're all human beings and we're all interconnected. It's just how is it that some of us have been conditioned to be able to have this level of sensitivity? You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit SoundsTrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Yeah, so I mean, God, you know, I have to be honest with you, Jack, I have so many questions right now, but I'm just going to keep going here. You talked about remote viewing previously, Mm -hmm. the ability for somebody to see into a room hundreds, thousands of miles away. Mm And so in a situation like that, are you saying that somebody that's, whose amygdala is somehow finely tuned in this way, some mm-hmm. capacity we all have, but mm-hmm. some people have been trained to do it, mm-hmm. it's the capacity that allows them to see what's happening in that room? I mean, how do you explain something like remote viewing? Well, I don't know if I can... I don't know if I'm well-versed enough to ex- to explain um, some of the techniques, uh, how one is trained to be a remote viewer, because I think elements of that program are still classified. I know there are people that actually give workshops and, and train people, and they're specific. I'm just using that as an example. Sure, sure, I'm sure, not sure, particularly sure. attached to remote sure. viewing. Sure. Um, I don't know exactly how that would be relevant, because I don't know how they're trained. But I can say that I, I look at that that function, that biological function, because it tells me that there is something physical that we can point to and measure that shows us that our bodies are more are more capable of more than what we normally accept as, as real you know and there has been laboratory research done um for instance you know there was a 
I forget the university, but there, I'll give you an example of what kind of research has been done. You know, we, you take an individual, you sit him in a chair, and uh, there's, there's, they hook them up to um, a machine that measures their, their, their conductance, their skin conductance. And uh, how much you sweat then affects how conductive it is, uh, by the bioelectric conductance. And so that the sweat response is completely autonomic. You can't control it. You can't make yourself sweat. So by measuring that, that tells that tells the researchers that there's something, there's no trick here, there's something going on, a response is triggered that the person can't control, right? So they put these people in chairs with a little monitor, and um, there's random images, and they're timed, and some of the images are benign, calm, nature scenes, kittens licking themselves, you know, trees. And then other images would be displayed that were, you know, either pornographic or violent scenes of, of um, you know, carbon carnage or, you know, ugly screaming faces and these things that would create an emotional response. And what they found was that, um, that the sweat response, that the brain, the body reacts seconds before we even view this material. And so that made the researchers scratch this head. And this is scratching my head. Yeah, it's been replicated several times at different universities. And, and don't quote me, but the, the odds against chance are in the hundreds of thousands to one that this is real, but yet it is. And so what it shows is that there's an aspect of, of our mind that is aware of threatening things before it enters conscious awareness. Um, and so I looked at that and I said, well, that's interesting. And, and then I began to compare some theories uh, on how people are conditioned to be psychic. And, you know, many people like to pretend that psychics have fallen out of the sky or slid down a rainbow and have come ordained by God to bless us all with all their wisdom. And the reality is that's not true. By and large, a lot of, lot of extrasensory or, excuse me, extrasensitive people have been raised in, in very stressful or traumatic environments. And that long-term neglect, abuse, stress can put the amygdala on red alert. And so they're, it's, they're hypersensitive. They're always scanning, looking, you know, and in, in homes where children are raised, where perhaps they weren't allowed to blossom and individuate in a healthy way. And then maybe the parents' needs come first, or for whatever reason, children are taught that they need to pick up and defend for themselves because no one's there for them. They become acutely sensitive and really aware of anything on going on around them. They sent the emotional changes in their mother, in their father, in the relationships. And so they, and then when they're, if they're punished, say if there's conflict in the home and the sensitive children oftentimes are, they become the, um, the sounding boards or sometimes the whipping posts, the black sheep of the family, they react, their sensitivity, they're like the pressure relief valve in the home. You know, they are reacting to the stress that no one will else will speak about. And they become, they get punished or, you know, they're punished for things that, that are completely beyond their control. And this kind of conditioning first, obviously makes the child extra, extra sensitive. Then they're taught that things that are none of their business are theirs to be concerned about, fix or worry. So they're instilled with this sense that what is yours is relevant to me and relevant to my survival. So the combination of these these two things, and of course I'm oversimplifying, leads to a personality that that is not only extra sensitive but can perceive information. Um, sometimes, you know, at least to a person to to identify as psychic, you know, and then when they begin psychic training, they then begin to externalize their wounds. And they stop there, and they're satisfied that they're psychic because it justifies how they feel and the way they see the world. But what actually what they're perceiving, feeling, and experiencing is just their Explain own demons. Explain what you mean by that, externalize their wounds. Okay. Yeah. In your subconscious is all the things that, you know, maybe you've forgotten or things that were traumatic, you know, that are buried within you, you know. And when you we begin psychic development... The first order of business is to go inside. Think of the, let's use this metaphor, the closet, the wardrobe from the, from the, from Chronicles of Narnia. You know, you go inside, you open that wardrobe and there's that, that dress that you haven't worn since you were three. And there hanging there is a poster that depicts how your father came home drunk and frightened you. And there was the time, 
you know, something else happened and there's this memory and that thing and all these things that we consciously don't recognize, but yet they, these things still have the ability to reach out and touch us through our feelings. But yet the rational mind, the logical mind can't see what that is. So when the, when these feelings arise, these experiences arise, coupled with sometimes environmental influences, people need a way to explain why it is they feel the way they do. And because these sensations are coming from a source that they can't readily identify, they they lean toward, they fall onto a mystical metaphor. And then to give themselves a sense of control over their life when these things are arguably a little bit destabilizing, causing some uncertainty, we imagine that I perceive these things because I'm unique. There's something special about me. I assuage these feelings and then I'm able to assume kind of some kind of control and then I gain some kind of prestige. And before you know it, I have this new persona that erupts and I become, it actually, it becomes like a Frankenstein, you know, you can become trapped in it. Um, but I think I kind of stepped away from your original question, but going into that wardrobe again, uh, as you begin to deal with those things, those issues from your past, these, these things that don't have words or they don't have f- memories, they're just feelings, they can be projected outward, you know. Um, and like oftentimes you'll hear someone say, I don't like that person. Their energy is like this. And maybe that person is disagreeable. But sometimes you dislike someone and you don't know why. And you and we'll say, well, it's got to be something about them. I've got to figure out what it is about them because I know. When the harder question is, maybe... I dislike this person because they're triggering this memory deep inside me. I'm using them as a mirror. And that can be a tool, that that relationship, that experience can be a tool or a means to heal something within ourselves. So one of the things that I'm, that I'm looking at with the rational psychic is to kind of give people an idea that sometimes what they perceive, if it's not readily verifiable, it could, that artifact could be used as a means to understand and know ourselves better. And yeah. then from that, we can, we, can, we can be better people. Okay. Now, I want to travel back just a little bit here to what I think was a really important point okay. you were making, which is that people who have psychic, quote-unquote, gifts, mm-hmm. that in your observation, that many of those people had difficult childhoods. And yes. it was because they were on some kind of hyper-alert. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it was a situation of sexual abuse mm-hmm. or uh, drunken parents or something mm-hmm. like that. That's part of how this developed. Certainly. Was there something like that in your own background? You know, it's interesting you ask that because how I first became aware, I call this conditioning theory. How I first became aware of this was I was actually was working on a murder case and um, this person had, you know, the person who came to me said I was, said I was referred by this big name person. And I went, well, that's very flattering. You know, I didn't know this person knew who I was, very famous person. And so I happened, I knew this other well-known person and I noticed his email in a, in a, kind of a bulk email thing. And I said, oh, I'll just send him an email and say, you know, thank you for, that was awfully kind of you, you know. So this person engaged me and he said, how the heck did you get my email? And he said, will you call me? So I, we, we had a conversation. He was really friendly, great person. And if one of the first things he asked me is, do you have an effed up childhood? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I've noticed, you know, and he shared that his, his father was an alcoholic. And he said, every psychic I know has this crazy yeah. childhood. And I said, oh, I hadn't really thought of that. And I certainly wasn't willing. I can be very guarded, you know, and I, I, I absolutely have had my, my troubles in childhood. And, um, and so we had this interesting conversation. It was short-lived. And then I went back to what I was doing. And then I, I had mentioned it to um, a parapsychologist I did some work with. I was writing a, a study with. And he said, he's, you know, he's actually a, was a department chair of psychology. And he said, oh, that's absolutely, I thought you knew that. And I said, well, I hadn't really considered it. And he said, and he, you know, we had a dialogue about it real briefly. And then I began to do a little like informal research, you know, kind of checking in with my friends and colleagues. And I began to notice it more and more. And suddenly sort of the, the maladaptive behaviors I was seeing in certain people whose, whose abilities I found suspect were beginning to make sense, you know, and then I, and then I really did. I evaluated my own childhood and, and some of the, some of the issues that I experienced when I was young. And I thought one and one in this case really equals two. And it really made sense to me. Um, and so I think 
not to flatter myself, I can write rather eloquently, I think, on this, and I think I do do a good job of it in the book. And um, I don't really use many of my personal experiences in the book, but I, I certainly own that I was able to write that because as you know, a black sheep child or as whatever phrase you want to use, I was that child. So putting myself time traveling a little bit, I can comparing what I learned working, talking and working with other psych, um, psychics and also you know, dialoguing with, with psychologists, clean, clean, trained clinicians. I was able to sort of process and really use my own experiences as a frame of reference to really own this and say, you know what, there's really something to this. Okay, and then you said, you know, we all have this capacity, but people who had effed up childhoods are yeah. more likely to have developed it. Yeah. But clearly there are plenty of people, just keep going with the effed up, who had effed up childhoods who, who don't. didn't develop psychic And abilities. there's people who are very talented who didn't have messed up childhoods. So there is there is arguably an unknown variable here. And I think that here's the thing. With people who had messed up childhoods, sometimes they're burdened with this, this overwhelming sense of self-concern. And I think that could be the ingredient. You know, there's a woe is me. There's um, there's an aspect of wanting to control, which you'll see, you know, fear of connecting, uh, fear of intimacy. Um, and those things don't lend themselves to psychic development. But see, with me, I was raised with two siblings who were in wheelchairs. So I was a caregiver when I was a child. And I was... Part of my effed up childhood had nothing to do with them. It was extraneous. But um, at the same time, I was conditioned to be a caregiver. And I and I had to, I felt like I earned my place. I earned my place in my family. I wasn't loved. I didn't feel loved. But I felt like I earned it. I earned my right to, to have my own yeah. private, whatever, you know, my keep, so as it were. And so I had that sense that... I had to be acutely attuned, not only to be safe, but to keep safe by taking care of the, those in my family who, yeah. who couldn't readily take care of themselves. And so looking and talking with other people who were similar to me also developed you know, a genuine psychic ability. I looked and I thought, what is it about them? What is it? Could, and that's how I kind of came upon, came upon the idea of need relevance. I was first introduced to the concept of need relevance by someone who helped develop the early protocols for the remote viewing program that then went from UCLA to SRI. He introduced me to the concept of need relevance, and I thought, that's interesting. That need relevance means that what the psychic perceives is right. what's necessary right for this moment to for help me. the person, yeah. to help Meaning the client. what I'm capable of picking up on extrasensory-wise is enters into my conscious awareness because there's a, there's a need relevance. There's an emotional need. Is that me, the client's need? That right, right away is my need. That's how I can access it. The trick as a psychic is, I, is entering into a, a state of compassion where your needs are vital to mine. That's how I can access information for you. Uh-huh. You know? Um, that's, that's barring we don't use any other kind of metaphors like spirit guides or, you know, kind of connecting, just not talking about mediumship or any of these other things. This is just straight psychic or, you know, let's say that's, that's just a way of accessing information. And so, you know, for people who maybe what I'm suggesting possibly is that people who didn't perhaps develop psychic ability, their, their sense of safety has initiated uh, or kept them in an, so self-concerned and so fearful that the, the ingredient that they didn't get was the the need to to care for others. I got gotcha. you. You know, like I have I have a colleague who terribly psychic, but she's like a loose cannon. She's so obtuse. She has no boundaries. She just she can't she cannot um, she can, she's not an individual in a very real mm -hmm. sense. And it's very difficult to be around her because it's so she's so invasive, but terribly talented. But she grew up completely enmeshed with her mother. As a, from a time she her mother was horribly disfigured in a, in a fire, and left her unable to do certain things because her her joints were fused. And so from a time she was single mom, so from the time she was old enough, she was helping her mom dress, taking putting doing her hair, makeup, all the way until the day she died. So this enmeshed relationship that, you know, has given, created within her this constant need, constant awareness of other people's needs, um, you know, on top of the stress and everything else. So I, 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 that's where I'm going. I think that's, I think that's the ingredient. 
that in order to be a talented psychic, you have to have the ability to take the position of the other and really understand what their genuine needs are, that that's one of the ingredients. I think I'll, I'll detract the term talented from your, okay. from your, you know, but just the ability to perceive verifiable information. Um, I think that's, I think that's a vital ingredient um, is being able to, is, is that I think uh, that's what I feel is important. I think that's what's missing from people who have just had damaged, who were maybe damaged from, I don't like to word damaged, but people who had difficult upbringings. Uh, I think that's the difference, you know, not to say they're not, they're not, they could be very empathetic, they could be kind people, yeah. but that ability to be, to, to, to grab on hold of information, I think that's the missing ingredient. Okay, now you mentioned a metaphor like spirit guides. Mm-hmm. So do you consider spirit guides to be real existing entities that we can tap into or simply a metaphor for some other aspect of our capacity to access higher knowings? It's an interesting question. Um, I wrestle with this even still as a solid day. I notice with myself, um, obviously there is that mechanism of our mind, the primary process where I think acts as a gatekeeper and interprets information for us. I feel like that could be a metaphor for, for a spirit guide. Now, I'm not following you exactly. There. Okay. The primary process is that is that bit that that function of the mind that 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 evaluates need relevance. If you know, it is what either think of it this way: it's like a valve. Information, if it's water, say say it's, say it's, think of plumbing. Information as water or as energy flows through these pipes, meets primary process. Primary process says, "Oh, you feel relevant to me. You get to go to the conscious awareness." This then it says. You're irrelevant. You go to the subconscious. You get buried. You don't get, you know. Um, so that gatekeeping mechanism um, and primary process also will sometimes distort information so it's palatable. You know, like with my alligator story, it makes it into a toy instead of something that would maybe scare me. So arguably, you know, a spirit guide, could that could be a metaphor for that function of the mind. You know, it's sep- it, it, it helps us. It guards that... Um, uh, it guards that doorway between our mind and everyone else's, between our subconscious and the superconscious, as it were. Um, so that could be a metaphor, right? That's one way to look at it. Now, I've noticed, you know, many people sort of, you know, that my spirit guide or my guide, who was in my spirit or spirit saying this, you know. I've noticed personally, if I, if I, I do have my own person, you know, I don't talk about it very often. You have a spirit guide. I, You're, the rational psychic has a spirit guide. The purpose, that wasn't the purpose of this book. But no, but I'm, but I'm curious to know if that's the case. <laughs> yes, yes. It, there, that is. From time to time, there is there is something, there is an aspect that I engage with that I have a name for that I that I feel like assists me. Um, Look, it's okay with me. I'm just trying to get, I know, cl- I'm trying I'm, to get clear on it. So yes. when you say an aspect, yes. do, is this an entity outside of Jack Rourke or is this some further sensitivity that you're just naming whatever you name it because you want to have a conversation with yourself. Exactly. The latter. No, all of what you said is true or not true. Here's the thing. That's what I think. Yeah. All of it's true or not true. That's what I think. Yeah. Here's the thing is that when we create um, a spirit guide as an individual separate from us, what we're doing is we're sourcing information we're creating a subject-object relationship with something, someone that mirrors conventional dialogue, which helps us process information. Because think how difficult it is to take in information that's part of us. We, there's always the observer and the observed. So it could be far more confusing to discern this information if we don't imagine that it's something separate from us first. Do you follow me? Well, okay. The idea this could be that, it could be true, it could be not true, it could be both. I mean, what I hear you saying is that it's a convenient way for us as humans to process information, to name this function. Right. But how is it possible that this is actually an entity outside of ourselves? Well, I'll extrapolate, I'll I'll speculate on that. But I want to say this first. Another reason that is helpful to to either imagine or identify or arguably work with something that we perceive as something separate from us is it inhibits the inner skeptic you know 
Meaning, if I just say, if I just accept this information is coming from outside of me, I don't take ownership of it. I just have to. I just say it to you, and that that free flow right. is sometimes exactly what you need in order to get to what can be verified. You know, so it kind of like it inhibits that skeptical part of our that left brain aspect of us. You know, um, now, arguably, if we want to pull pull focus out really wide. Once you, you know, our brain is the instrument that, that localizes our awareness. And the capacity to discern information requires us to shift our focus, to shift our awareness outside of that confines made by our brain. So outside that self-created illusion of individuality, there there is no separateness. So even if there is an intelligent separate from us as we are individuals when we're in ultimately is it really separate from us at all so by saying maybe it's just a part of your mind that might sound cynical or rational but maybe it only seems that way because uh, our belief system we want to grab onto something else okay. now, how, how do you work with your spirit guide since you confessed i pulled it out, i somehow pulled it out of you you pulled it out of me the purpose of this book was to, to not to use any spiritual metaphors so that people could... I understand, yeah. but we're just having a conversation. So, that, yeah. There happened to be recorded. In. Yeah, but it anyway. just so happens. <laughs> it's a conversation in front of others, but yeah. still. Um, it's interesting. I, I I will do something like this, you know, before I begin. I'll, you know, I'll center myself and I'll kind of um, still my mind and still myself. And there's... It's it's a it's a it's a feeling based process. I can't describe what it is, but it's just a shift of awareness. And when that shift happens, I can feel it, and I know that I'm open for business. You know, and right before that happens, I'll I'll just say, hey, you know, and I'll address this person by name, the person, you know, and it's a name that was I felt was given to me, and it's kind of ironic one. Um, you can and, tell me if you want to. No, I want to keep that. Okay, private. that's fine. Um, the and I'll just say, you know, please be present, you know, and and I ask you to, you know, facilitate this communication between, you know, my client and and you know their loved ones and whomever and blah blah blah, highest good, yada yada, and um, and then it's funny, you know, when I work that way, my work generally is 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 much is much flows better, it flows, it can be more precise, but then having said that, there's times without. In consciously engaging that mechanism or that individual, there's still some astonishing things that happen. But I find that there's a there's I work harder when I don't engage that that conceivably that individual. So maybe there maybe maybe there is someone who we can't see that whispers in our ears from time to time. You know, I don't know. You know, that's something that can't be proven. You know, um, but what I can say is, you know. We often have experiences that can't be proven. The experience is real. What we feel is also often very real. And what I endeavored to do with the rational psychic was to communicate to people that, yes, our feelings are real, our experiences are real, but there are also ways that we can talk about these things that we we needn't be afraid or we needn't feel embarrassed or we needn't deny them. Um, and uh, and we can we can... By working with these things in a real rational, concrete way, we can learn to understand ourselves in a much more interesting way. Except, I mean, obviously, we're gonna, through the book, we understand a lot of different paranormal things that previously maybe folks won't have maybe been able to explain or understand. But it really is about dealing with yourself. It's the instrument that you know that we're really getting at. How does it work, and and why does it do what it does, and 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 how can I? How can I let go of certain things and embrace other aspects of myself? Okay, just a couple more questions, Jack. Yeah. I know that the rational part of you mm-hmm. loves when things are verified. Yeah. Third-party verification. Mm-hmm. So do you have any ideas, dreams of how science could actually do a better job verifying psychic abilities? What kinds of tests or experiments you'd like to see? Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I I believe that in the future, and I'm talking, you know, probably 100, 200, maybe more years if we live that long, I feel like that 
there will be i think i think as as technology begins to mirror human biology more and more and more and intelligence is transferred to machines i think that we're going to be we're going to come to understand the physical body as just an apparatus because i feel like down the road we're going to be able to duplicate many of the things that we now think that we could never do and not to sound blasphemous but i think when we get to that point more people are going to be willing to concede that there has to be more you know there has to be more and i don't know like for say that we can create some machine that can measure ghosts or that can interpret information like consciousness or or help you know uh, help us perceive information in the environment i mean conceivably look conceivably you know a hundred years ago if someone said there's there's things that exist in in the infrared or the ultraviolet spectrum you know you would say no way you're crazy but now we know and if we could see as a spider does you know we would know that the world is far different than what than the, how we see it you know um i don't you're probably aware of this but you know spider silk it refracts sunlight and it refracts ultraviolet light. And so when insects see, uh, they see in the ultraviolet. So when they, the, when they see that refracted light given, by, by, um, given off by a spider web, they believe that they're actually moving into an open space. Because that's how they navigate. They navigate through shadows and light and dark and ultraviolet light, you know, by monitoring the light. And so they see this bright spot and they think they're, they're going to fly into an open space. And that's how they get trapped. You know, and and in the same way, you know, insects and bees, because they can see in the ultraviolet, they they might we might look at a flower and see that it only has two colors, they see four, and and it's beautiful because the way these colors are arranged it actually directs them into the flower like a landing strip. You know, so arguably, because of the limitation on our own senses that there's far more going on. Maybe there are people standing right here that we can't see, and perhaps one day just like how we can we've developed technologies that can see into the infrared or the ultraviolet we'll have uh, something developed that can see into a spectrum of light that that we don't even know exists yet maybe that's possible um but um we can i mean we can only speculate okay and just one final question jack you talked about how in your own emergence mm-hmm. of psychic abilities that a difficult childhood was part of it mm-hmm. What would you recommend for somebody who, so far, hasn't had much access to psychic perception, mm. but is interested in having that open in them? What would you recommend? Wow. My first question would be why. You know, what do you want to know? You know? I want more information so I have more power. Yeah, that's More exactly. capacities to accomplish stuff. Yeah, that's the wrong answer. You know, I, that, I'm offering that because no, I presume that is no, probably it is. the most likely response it is. to People that. People yeah. think that it's going to offer them some some kind of unique skill or ability. You get a leg up on the situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, and and the truth of the matter is is that you know with development comes responsibility, and there's a level of emotional distress that can come along with it because. As you begin to challenge what your brain creates for you as reality, you have to to- you have to completely um, reevaluate everything you think you know, all your belief systems, all the certainties you know and with that, you know our, our reality is created and, and partially defined created by how we define things emotionally. And as we change and as our perception changes, our feelings change, the, how emotionally, how we connect with things also is altered and you can become really destabilized. And, and you know, that's something that people don't talk about and don't understand. But in, in laboratories, you know, in controlled settings or people are, you know, instituting development, it's seen time and time again that people become unraveled. So it's 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 a very precarious thing that people are asking for. What is the right answer to the question then? Service, service, um, because 
when people always say, you, oh, you have an amazing gift, you're so fortunate to have that gift, uh, that always kind of rubs me the wrong way inside. And I, sometimes I'll smile and say thank you. But if I'm in, an, in some place where I feel comfortable kind of revealing more of myself or, you know, I'll say, you know, um, it's really not a gift. It's only a gift when you give it away to someone else. You know, and um, and and so service. You know, the truth is, is that it takes a tremendous amount of compassion to be able to to access that need relevance. You know, for someone else. But compassion can be developed without being psychic. Sometimes that compassion leads to sort of a more empathetic or even extrasensory ability. You know, but it, it doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't make you more powerful. It doesn't make you smarter. It doesn't make you sharper, funnier, wittier. You know, and so you know, in in Eastern traditions, you know, where where many of you know we get our information about psychic ability and metaphysics, you know, it was always advised to people on the path of enlightenment to ignore the paranormal voices, to ignore the visions and things, because these are are there are things that you can that are attracted to the ego. They're shiny objects that we want to grasp and hold on to, and then our point of focus becomes about what can I do. Who am I? Look at this. Look what I can see. And we stop developing as human beings. You know, so really, you know, if someone who maybe didn't have this come naturally and they, they, they found their way to it to develop it in order to better understand themselves or to serve others, you know, there, there really isn't, it's not necessary. Well, I love that idea that service is the yeah. being able to be of benefit to others as yeah. a primary motivation yeah. or whatever one's next step is. Sure, sure. It's beautiful. I've been talking with Jack Rourke. He's the author of a new book from Sounds True, The Rational Psychic, A Skeptic's Guide to Extraordinary Perception. Thank you. Thanks for bringing your uh, heart and your rational mind and your huge openness and heart of service to what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for being with us. 